In the fall of 1519, Martin Luther was concerned. His concern was not brewing because the Pope was calling for him to be arrested, and neither was it the attachment of his name to the heretic, John Huss, worrying Luther. Luther was concerned for the souls of those that the Lord had placed near to him. His protector, Frederick the Wise, became very ill. The people were curious and seeking promise. Did Luther have something to offer them? The illness of Frederick and his concern for the people turned his attention away from lofty questions of theology and more towards the practical aspects of how evangelical theology would provide comfort for Frederick and the lives of his parishioners. Over the course of sermons and treatises in 1519, Martin Luther considered the intersection of faith and life by addressing the sacraments of penance, baptism, and Holy Communion. Luther's three teaching sermons on the sacraments infuriated the supporters of the Pope. Duke George of Saxony called the treaties containing Luther's three teaching sermons on the sacraments infuriated the supporters of the Pope. Duke George of Saxony called the treaties containing these three sermons full of heresy and scandal. Luther responded by calling these complaints the trumpeting of a sterile pig. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I am Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast where we discuss the history surrounding the documents and ideas from the Lutheran Reformation over a nice cold beer. In 1517, Martin Luther posted 95 theses to debate the power and authority of the Church to grant forgiveness of sins apart from faith in Jesus Christ. The indulgences were for sale, and the people were purchasing relief from purgatory, relief for themselves and for their loved ones. But in 1518, uh, Luther still sought to reform the church rather than to separate from it. There was a meeting of the Augustinian order in Heidelberg. Uh, We talked about that, I believe it was in episode 5. And Luther discussed the hope and promise of finding God that was found in the suffering on the cross. The theology of the cross explored at Heidelberg demonstrated that the Holy Scripture is the revelation of God's promise. And even while Luther explored the promises of Scripture to bring comfort to those who hold faith in Christ, the confrontation with Rome is accelerating. The Diet of Augsburg in 1518, in that fall of 1518, Luther and Cardinal Cajetan, uh, they met. The Cardinal intended to get Luther to report for Rome for trial or to recant. Luther did neither. Next, Karl von Miltitz, an ambassador from Rome, sought, well, a political solution. And this offered maybe something for a little while. Luther agreed to remain silent if his opponents remained silent. Now, in 1519, we'll continue with our our, uh, recap of of the past episodes. In 1519, uh, and I believe this might have been the last one, was uh, John Eck uh, and had a debate with Luther in Leipzig. Uh, Now, that really proved that the silence wasn't going to be kept. Uh, the Leipzig debate brought Luther into a greater discussion on papal authority, and Luther held the debate that all people, including the Pope, are servants of the truth of Scripture. In 1519 and 1520, Martin Luther is not only being drawn into debates, he's also publishing many sermons and books in order to teach the Christians that are seeking promise and hope. So now we're sort of caught up. Uh, and in today's episode, we're going to be of, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about these sermons that Martin Luther published in 1519. And the sermons are about what at this time Luther felt were the three 
three uh, sacraments. Uh, he's, uh, it's penance, it's baptism, and it's the Lord's Supper. People were held under the influence of a sacramental system developed during the later Middle, Middle Ages. The papal authority of the church retained power apart from the gospel when the gate to God is opened or closed without reference to the scriptures. And indeed, Luther saw the way that these three sacraments were being conducted in the church at that time were without reference to the scriptures. So the gate to God is being opened and closed by something that isn't the gospel. So these three sermons that that we're talking about, there's uh, the, the Sermon on the Sacrament of Penance, uh, the S- Sermon on the Holy and Blessed Sacrament of Baptism, and uh, then the Sermon on the Blessed Sacrament of the Holy and True Body of Christ and the Brotherhoods. So it, it's, those are, those are, and you can see those three sermons, Penance, Baptism, and Communion, are the three areas of of interest to Luther during this time. And it's like like we said earlier, that's at that intersection of faith and life. It's in those sacraments that that the reality of God active in our life hits our life, right? And in the in the church, the way we deal with God is through his word and through his sacrament. And so if the word of God is interpreted wrongly, our, our way to understanding God is broken. And if the sacraments are administered in a way apart from God, then we're being offered empty promises. So as Luther is bringing reform to the church, we call this the Reformation. What is he reforming? He's reforming the way we understand God's word, and he's reforming the way we understand the sacraments. All of this is based in in the Gospels. All of this is based in the teachings of Jesus Christ and the apostles in the New Testament. And that's really one of the critical things that's happening in all of this, is that through all of this, Luther is taking what was at that time current Catholic, Roman Catholic teachings, bouncing it off of what he's finding in Scripture, and saying, "Oh, well, there's something here. Oh, well, there's nothing here." You know, and and if if he can find something that that backs up Roman Catholic teaching, he leaves it. For mm-hmm. example, baptism. You know, Christ calls for baptism in, in in the in the Bible, so Luther leaves it. Christ calls for confession in the Bible, or we are called to to confess, confess our, our sins. sins. And and in the Lord's Supper, this is something Christ instituted. Now, I know in Protestant circles, Lutherans are seen kind of odd with our, our touch to the sacraments. But some of what this brings up is Luther's understanding of the Word of God is not simply equated with the written text of the Scriptures. And so he has confidence that the Word of God, the enfleshing of God's promises in this world happens, yes, in the text of Scripture, but it also happens, of course, in Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh, and it happens in the sacraments. This confounds some of my Baptist friends that I have when I talk about baptism, and I say it is a delivery of God's Word, and and that's just a phrasing they haven't heard before. But for Luther, the sacraments, um, the offering of the forgiveness of sins, the baptism, and, and the Lord's Supper are really just more conversations about the Word of God. You know, it's funny. I've actually had, uh, just recently, had that specific discussion with a Baptist friend of mine, or a, uh, we'll call him an evangelical friend, uh, but he really was not at all, when I said, you know, that our whole life is a living out of our baptism, which, uh, and, and that, you know, we are always, every day, returning to our baptism. It was a very, very foreign concept to him, and I really struggled to try to explain it. Mm-hmm. It's it, 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 there's a huge divide between Lutherans 
and and much of the rest of the Protestant community in this question of the sacraments, in this question of the baptism. And I think as Lutherans is trying to figure out how to communicate what we believe about the sacraments, that word sacrament is a tough word. It's a it's a, a hurdle in some of the conversation. So I like to talk about it as where is the word of God in our world today? So this is the way Lutherans think, and Catholics actually. This is mm-hmm. one of those areas where when we were first coming up with this whole podcast, one of the ideas, we were bouncing different ideas off of each other on what to call the podcast. And we ended up with Grace on Tap. But one of the previous ideas was to call it, um, uh, it was, uh, uh, it was on, we were going to reference the historical or tradition. Mm-hmm. So it was going to be something along the lines of, um, no harm to grace. Which is, you know, sort of the Lutheran lens, as I understand. How we evaluate tradition is keep tradition as much as it isn't a harm to grace. Yes. And so it's like, there's, you know, as we look through tradition, we look to make sure there's no harm to grace. If there's no harm to grace, then we, we keep it. And, and the, the sacraments of, uh, baptism, and also if it's in the Bible, the sacraments of baptism, the sacrament of, of well, at that time, Luther considered the sacrament of confession. I've got, yes. we've got, we're going to have Yeah, to there this. is some conversation about that because even in the um, book of Concord, Augsburg Confession, Melanchthon, and, and, and they sometimes refer to the sacrament of penance still as a, one yeah, of the sacraments of the church. The, the, that, that particular one is a little bit So sometimes muddy. Lutherans, I think two and a half sacraments. Two, <laughs> two and a half. Yeah, that's right. Now, before we discuss those three sermons, we will add to our discussion on the pastoral heart of Martin Luther by briefly discussing a devotional that Luther wrote called the 14 Consolations. So now usually we cover one document. Today we're going to be covering four and we're going to try and cover them all pretty quickly. So this is going to be sort of skimming across the across the, the top of the water here uh, pretty quickly because we don't want to have a two and a half hour. They're all story. centered around the pastoral care of Martin Luther in his preaching and in his writing. And this 14 Consolations is centered around the illness of Frederick the Wise. He is the noble that protects Martin Luther. And he was deathly ill, or at least there was a concern that he was deathly ill at this time. So Martin Luther's returning from his debate with John Eck in Leipzig, and Frederick has grown very sick to the point where everybody is concerned he's going to die. And the counselor to uh, Frederick the Wise, um, Splaton, suggested that Luther write a note of consolation for those facing death. And Luther wrote a devotional called the 14 Consolations. So Splaton is a friend of Luther's from Erfurt, was a priest, uh, became uh, a chaplain to the court, is largely seen as a, a counselor. Uh, Luther and Frederick the Wise have never recorded in, in our history have having met. You know, it's that's one of the funny things is we continue to talk, I mean, almost... Every episode up until this point. About we, Frederick the Wise we, and Luther. Uh, uh, Frederick the Wise and Luther. Frederick the Wise and Luther. And they never met. Or at Sp- least there's no record of them So Spalatin, S-P-A-L-A-T-I-N. Spalatin is the kind of go-between. And so... And Staupitz, what's his role in that? Staupitz was the head of the Augustinian order, was as the head of the Augustinian order, was also in charge of the placing of some professors at University of Wittenberg. Okay. But... Uh, now, the 14 Consolations, it's an interesting window into medieval religious thinking. Luther liked it enough that he republished it 20 years later in 1536. He kept some of the, the Catholic theology that he would later in his life identify in it, even, and kept it republished as it was, as a window and moment of time. 
Okay. And now the way this the way this is sort of set up is that you have the the first part of it are the seven evils, right? And so you have uh, the seven evils in uh, to show the relative insignificance of the present evils in comparison. So what what there's what Luther is sort of doing is he's going through and he's saying, okay, yes, you are you are going through some sort of illness, you're going through some sort of suffering, but compare that which isn't really consolation to yeah, me yeah compare all these evils to what you justly deserve as a sinner well all those evils that are even worse than what you're experiencing right now in your death illness frederick the wise just remember it was endured by christ on the cross and so you sum up the seven evils and just say it could be so much worse and thankfully everything that could be worse was taken by Christ on the cross. Now I don't think it's a uh, it's an accident that he finishes up with the seven blessings because yes. that's that's far more conciliatory, right? So that's yeah. that's something. And so we have the seven blessings. What, what are the seven blessings? Uh, well, the the he talks about internal blessings and future blessings, and the image of blessing chiefly is around bringing relief to the suffering and heavy laden, okay. and the image that lifts us up above our evils, above our blessings is that we are set down in the blessings of another. We are set down in Christ's righteousness. So one of the things he's doing is in the seven evils, the seven blessings, he looks at what our eyes see. And with our eyes, we see the seven things we do wrong. And then he looks at what our eyes don't see, this, the justice and wrath of God that we deserve that is taken to Christ on the cross. Then he talks about seven blessings, things that we see that could be filled with glory. And he sets even that aside and he places us not in the comfort of our blessings versus our evils. He places us down into the blessings of someone else besides us. And that is in Christ. So Luther turns the focus of Frederick the Wise from his evils and even from his blessings towards the ultimate blessing of being set amidst the blessing of Jesus. Think of pastoral care, Mike, and if you're, you're sick, and I say, well, you could be so much sicker. All right, that's the seven evils. Okay. And you could be deserving the wrath of God. And then I say, but think about how blessed you are. And we could count up seven great things that are going in your life. And I said, but something's even better than those seven great things going in your life. I see. I see. So... So now what all of this does is this is, this gets Luther's thinking in terms of he's, he's focusing on Frederick the, Frederick the Wise and, and his living through his illness. But now Luther turns his attention not just at Frederick the Wise, but at his, he goes to his congregation, the, the people that he's ministering to as a pastor. Mm-hmm. And, and he starts thinking about, well, and, and one of the things that, was very clear to, I think, most medieval peasants was the power of the sacraments. And they, they truly got, and unfortunately, a lot of that is lost in today's day and age. Uh, the, 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 the reality of Christ being present in the, in communion, the, the reality of. And that was present in the Middle Ages. And that's not something Luther took away. Right. In 1537, Martin Luther writes the small called articles. This is kind of his last will and testimony of what he holds most dear. So 1537, we're, we're really talking about right now about the sermons of 1519. But I want you to know that in 1537, Martin Luther wrote, God will not deal with us except through his external word and sacrament. That Luther was still convinced throughout his whole life that the sacraments are a part of the pastoral life of a congregation. The, and the way we live out our Christian life is in relationship to the external word 
and the sacraments. Now, partly because so many Christians today look at communion as being simply symbolic, the, that 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 idea that that communion is symbolic, that there is really nothing. There's nothing there but to help you personally remember. Yeah, that's that is that finds its way into Catholic lay theology you know the the people in the pews and in in the in the lutheran church people in the pews sometimes that that idea that this is all symbolic sort of seeps into their thinking i i can only speak for i think that happens in american christianity because we are so focused on what people think and the sacraments are about what we receive and that's just a tough thing to be a receiver um, rather than someone in the driving seat. So, so, but in the medieval ages, people really understood that that this was some this is a powerful thing that was happening here, that this was real comfort that was happening. And so Luther, as he's thinking about, it makes perfect sense that when he's thinking about giving comfort and consolation to Frederick the Wise, he starts thinking about this, the way the sacraments work for his congregation and his attention. And there is our transition to the next sermon. <laughs> there we go. So let's talk about this sermon of penance. Nice transition there, Mike. And how, so he writes to Frederick the Wise, but he also awakens in that idea, how do the people in the pew find comfort in relationship to Jesus? So we're going to discuss now Luther's sermon on penance. Penance is a word that just describes the repentance of sins. The word describes the process by which a person uh, confesses his or her sins, desires to be forgiven, and receives this forgiveness. Now, one of the things that Luther wrote to John Eck, and I was actually sort of surprised that he was still seeming to have a somewhat friendly relationship with John Eck, even though things went so, I'll say poorly, in Leipzig. But Luther wrote to John Eck, and I believe it was in this era, Uh, And he says, there is no work of the church so much in need of reforming as confession and penance. For it is here that all the laws, prophets, powers, tyranny, error, danger, and innumerable evils rage for all souls and the entire church. So the common medieval church goer was very different from the modern church person in their view of sin. Uh, I think everybody has a pretty good idea of the problem of sin. The idea, though, is... How bad is it? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I was, I, I overheard a conversation. This was a few years ago. It, st- it sticks in my mind. Somebody said, you know, they're not going to church. Somebody doesn't go to, well, do you think you need to go to church? And the person who was being asked this says, no, I don't think so. I follow the Ten Commandments. And and it's sort of like, you know, what, uh, I, I just sort of didn't yeah. say much, but that was, uh, I probably should have, but I, I didn't say anything. The, um, but it was uh, shocking to me that anybody could say, oh, I follow the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I, I do my best. I work hard. I try hard. And, um, you know, I'm only human. That, that essentially be- has recently become, I think, the view of sin. Um, just work hard. Try your best. And, well, you're human anyways. What do you expect? And in the Middle Ages, they were quite aware that sin meant the judgment and wrath of God. Well, they understood that sin was a comparison of who you are versus the perfection of God. Yeah, that's a good point to describe um, when talking about sin. What is the measuring stick of, so if I'm not supposed to be doing this, what am I supposed to be doing? And Jesus said, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. The perfection of God was clear. The wrath of God regarding sin was real. And the problem of sin 
was matched with the danger of God's wrath. So what was happening in the medieval church is both confession and repentance was the mechanism for communicating God's love for the sinner and and for, you know... But this image of God's love is crowded and clouded because of... Because of, well, because of, I'm going to say, because of scholastic theology. You know, yeah. what, what scholastic theology did, and you can go back to some of our earlier episodes, but what scholastic theology did was it sort of muddied the, the water a little, quite a bit, I would say. Uh, it muddied the water and it was like, well, God loves you, but you have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, do this fast, wear these clothes, do this, do that. And it, it became a very messy business. It became something that with the right practice, the right focus, you can reason and practice your way into doing it. Well, what if I don't have enough reason and what if I don't have enough time for practice? Well, you can buy an indulgence. Ding, 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 ding. You can do these works of supererogation and you can borrow from the grace of others who have done more than they need. Yeah, so so there was like this this cheap go around to keep people from having yeah. to, which, like we said in an earlier episode, was originally put in place to sort of bridge that gap to make people comfortable. Yeah, scholasticism sets a, a bar that's really high, but still is something you are responsible for. And then there developed these uh, practices, these abuses, that if that bar is too high for you, we've got another way. It might take a while, like millions of years in purgatory, but we'll get you there. And so Luther wanted, though, to go further than just getting rid of the abuses of the quick go-arounds. It's not like he wanted to get rid of the abuses that had developed to make it easier for people who couldn't climb the barriers of scholasticism. He wanted to, in fact, go further. He wanted to eliminate the corruption that had developed around the sacrament of penance with indulgences and purchasing of forgiveness. But he also wanted to change the whole character of penance from being a work, whether it's a hurdle that's real high or it's a work that you do a go around, change it entirely from being anything I do to entirely an act of receiving what Christ has done in Jesus. Now, I mean, what God has done in Jesus. Now, one of the things to, to sort of see where Luther got a lot of this, um, well, let, let's take a step back. Erasmus uh, in Rotterdam, Erasmus of Rotterdam, in a few years previously, he, was, he had translated the Latin Bible into Greek, and he actually went back to the original Greek of the New Testament and brought that forward for people like Luther to to read this. Yeah, and Melanchthon was also hired at this time at Wittenberg as a professor of Greek. There is this reawakening of Greek studies and getting back to the, the sources. Ad fontum, back to the source. And so how does this back to the sources come up into the sacrament on penance? Is, well, the New Testament was written in Greek, but the Roman church used a version that was in Latin. And anytime there is a movement from one language to another, there sometimes has to be made some choices. And during the translation, the Greek word for repent that's in Matthew 3 was replaced by a Latin term, which is pronounced penentium agit. Okay, time to drink. Ponentium agit, which w- could mean repent, which would be close to the original Greek, or do penance, do a work. And so where someone could hear repent, and that is turn away from your sins and trust in the mercy of Jesus Christ, 
But if I hear it instead of that metanoia, repent, well, I had some Greek in there, it becomes now, instead of a do, it becomes uh, an act of receiving. Luther wanted to return to the original Greek meaning of Matthew 3 by eliminating the need for works of satisfaction from penance. The to-do of penance needed to be taken away from the sacrament. So, so when you, when Luther was looking at this, this, this transition from Greek to Latin and the choice that was made by the translators to change the word repentance to do penance, he, he had problems with that. And he, he started to say, well, you know, we, we need to get back to the original Greek understanding of all this. And, and so he's looking at, uh, at, at, at trying to find the, the 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 right way to do this and and so what he gets to is that then we've talked about this many many times this the the trust in Christ and Christ's death and resurrection as being what what Luther read in the Bible was that that penance was a a reliving of a reliving of our baptism again this that we die to our sin and we're raised up by the power of God. I have to tell you, Mike, it wasn't until a couple of years into being a pastor that I think I really started to understand the word repent. And I, that may be shocking to people that I went to Lutheran schools forever, but I was really hammered into my mind that repent is you've done wrong, now start doing right. So, yeah. So even Lutherans, and I, I mean, I have a Catholic background. I, I mean, that's not too strange, is it, to think of, because, you know, the word repent in Greek, metanoia, means turn around. Okay. And so the idea is you turn from going one direction to now going the other direction. But if my turnaround is from doing bad, the answer to going the right direction to doing good misses the point of repentance. It turns the to do independence. The penance is, I was doing wrong, now I need to do these things. And that's entirely what Luther's preaching against. Instead of the turnaround being, I'm doing bad, now do good, the turnaround is this. You were trying to save yourself, now trust in Jesus saving you. The work of repentance is not nearly as much about my work being bad, now being my work being good. It is my work being idolatrous and trying to save myself and be my own God, to now being a simple humble child of God trusting he is my savior. Now, the way this played out in medieval uh, medieval Germany, uh, the medieval ages, I think pretty much universally in the in the Christian world was that people would would have like the common folks would would go they'd they'd and they'd be concerned that if they didn't perform penance properly, then they would not be forgiven. And this was this was a burden that Luther lived under in his early years. And he writes about it a lot, Mike. Even in the Small Called Articles, which I mentioned in our introduction, he wrote about the difference between true repentance and false repentance. And that's 20 years later than what the sermon we're talking about. This was a lifelong struggle for Luther and how to communicate repentance. Because if you did repentance wrong, you were supposed to do it right. And if you didn't do it right... Then you suffered. So, so what does it mean to do it right in, in the medieval ages? Medieval, medieval ages, you had to at least once a year make confession to a priest with your lips, say the words out loud, and the priest would have to hear it. So, and that's still Catholic theology. Auricular confession. That's that's still required by Catholic theology. You you cannot get communion in Catholic theology unless you go. Well, you're not supposed to, unless you go to 
to confession at least once a year. Because you need to be in a state of grace. Yes. So you go to confession, uh, you arrive, uh, you had to remember and feel bad for all of your sins. You tell the priest, and the priest would then tell you that your sins would be forgiven, and you would have to do works of satisfaction to make up for the worldly uh, struggle you have brought upon yourself. So now the problem that the midi- that Luther had and what he I'm going to just say what he perceived other medieval Christians had was that there was this concern that if I didn't do this perfectly, then my penance, my forgiveness... You should be uncertain. ...is tainted. It's tainted, yeah. So the three steps we described, any of those three steps done incompletely would result in an incomplete forgiveness. First step, say it to the priest. Um, Hear the words from the priest that your sins are forgiven. And then do the works of satisfaction that demonstrate the earnestness, the truthfulness of your repentance. Luther saw a church that's enmeshed in an activity of torture right here because the conscience is being comforted by something that will never bring comfort, their own works. The people were encouraged towards an endless doing rather than a confident being and believing. If my certainty in confession is rooted in what I have done, instead of what Christ has done for me, I will be left uncertain. And the fact is, is that in our hearts of hearts, at least I can only, I'll speak for myself. In my heart of hearts, I know that my good works are tainted. I know that my good works are never perfect. They're never satisfying. They're never satisfying. It's always sort of like, well, yeah. So you do more and you do more. And the, it's almost the idea if that if I hand you uh, three broke, four broken chairs, eventually I keep handing you enough broken chairs, you'll have enough chairs to put around the table. But if every chair I've handed you is broken, you still have not enough chairs to put around the table. And it's sort of the way it feels, right? So it's like, okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm putting, I'm putting together my my table setting here. I'm, I, I've got broken chairs. I've got messed up forks and everything else. And then I look at it. Yeah, it looks pretty crappy. But it's, and that, that is, but that's, that's just my own, my own now, but yeah. with, with the, with the work of Jesus Christ, I know that his work, his table setting, what he sets up is going to be perfect. And so it's through his work that I can have confidence that, that those broken chairs aren't broken. So Luther sets up a word model to help communicate this idea. He says, for the one who believes nothing is harmful. And everything is beneficial. For the one who does not believe, everything is harmful and nothing is beneficial. The confidence in all of that is the object of your faith is Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then anything you do is is not used against you. Now, you can see, and this is something we'll get into in future episodes, any medieval Catholic hearing this would automatically, not any, but especially a medieval Catholic theologian listening to this, would be thinking, what do you, what, whatever happened to good works? What you, you, If so, it's all about faith, what have you left them with? There's the, no Christian life here. The, the, there's going to be, there's going to be rioting in the streets. It's and, a formula for chaos. And, and, and so this is, this is one of those areas that Luther anticipates that. And he tries to make a distinction in here. To, to, to make it clear, he encourages people to do good works. He, not out of fear, but out of thankfulness for what God has done for us. So, so he talks, and, and this is going to be an 
ongoing discussion point between Luther and his opponents, mm-hmm. talking about the importance of good works in Luther's theology, because this was a real concern. And actually, I was reading uh, uh, Melanchthon uh, as you know after Luther died, uh, and we'll talk about Melanchthon down the road a little bit because he becomes a bigger and bigger part of this discussion. But Melanchthon also because he was in these battles with Eck after Luther died, a lot of these theological battles with Eck, he struggled with how do we get this concept of good works in here? And it's it ends up being a real problem, uh, but that's down the road. So the church could act as a torturer by focusing on comfort and works. Why is that torture? Because you can never do enough. You will always be doing that Sisyphean task of trying to roll the stone up the hill and it falling back down. Or the church could act as comforters by focusing the penitent on the works of Jesus as fully sufficient. So the medieval system was three parts. Say it out loud, um, hear from the priest, and then do your works of satisfaction. Luther changed it to two steps. Say what you've done wrong, and hear from the pastor the words of forgiveness. And believe those. Have faith in those words. And your salvation is in the faith that Jesus Christ has covered your sin. All right, time for a beer break. Okay. So, so today's beer is from Arcadia Ales. This is, uh, Arcadia Ales is, uh, uh, founded in Battle Creek, Michigan by a guy named Tim Surprise and his wife, Mindy. Uh, Tim originally came from upstate New York and spent five years bouncing around doing different things. Uh, but eventually started out, uh, you know, started making a beer. And he started with this, uh, the, these Arcadia Ales, which are actually pretty popular here in, in the Detroit area, at least. I, I, I've seen these in, in, I didn't realize it was just in Battle Creek, actually. I, I, I've, I've enjoyed Arcadia Ales for probably for the last about five or ten years. Good, mm-hmm. good beer. Um, so it's a got a brewery and a pub there in Battle Creek, uh, authentic English brick kettle brewing system and open fermentation using English ale yeast, little money available for an elaborate kitchen. A wood fire stove was procured faithful decision. It turns out it's a location for wood fired pizza as well. By 2014, Battle Creek location uh, was too small to support the continued growth, so they opened a second location in Kalamazoo at an abandoned site of a former coal-burning power plant. Now, the the Kalamazoo place, I guess, is is uh, that's really a much bigger uh, operation. Uh, Tim continues that Tim surprise he continues to be the CEO, but they brought in um, oh what was his name the the new president of this uh, and and he's I've got it in my notes here oh Jim Lutz there we go and he's got a lot of experience with 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 uh with this sort of thing he's i guess that and that's part of the reason i think arcadia ales has gotten to be so popular is they've got some real real talent sort of guiding the ship there and and really making a and so the beer we have from arcadia ale today is the hook down scotch ale <laughs> no, that's the reason it got grumbled there it's a it's locked down but it's as in Loch Ness monster l-o-c-h-l <laughs> so so uh, this is the, the, the Scotch Ale. Is, uh, this is a, a, a tribute to the Scottish Highlands uh, they, they, uh, from their website. Now, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just going to comment on, you know, this, it's a nice, smooth, it's a nice, smooth beer. I, I, yeah. Generally, though, um, I don't have, I'm not a favor of the this. aftertaste of a Scotch Ale. Oh, really? No, but this one has a good aroma. 
And uh, for me, the aroma that's in the air is better than the taste. Oh, you know, I, I've I, the, the 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 aftertaste that you talked about. This actually reminds me of sort of the smell we used to get in the kitchen when I used to brew beer. Mm. It's got that real, I don't know, grainy. Yeah, grains and and you, you really the the taste sort of matches that smell, and I, I just I, I I guess I like it, but that's um. I, I like beer. <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pretty forgiving when it comes to beer. So there is our beer break. Okay. We got to keep moving, though, because we got four documents we're covering today. Yeah, we, we spent a lot of time on, on penance, but penance, it, it, penance is actually sort of a good place to start because it, 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 it really presents what baptism is about in a lot of ways, baptism and, and communion in in a concrete way that people can understand. Where if I have sinned and you tell me your sins are forgiven in the name and promise of Jesus Christ, uh, that is the gospel. That is the word of God brought into our relationship. And that is exactly the same thing that's happening in baptism. And that is exactly the same thing that's happening in, in communion. Right. Yeah. And so you, the word you, of God brought into our relationship. So, so, so we spent a little bit of time on, on confession because it's a it's a great sort of template to look at the at the other sacraments through. So let, let's let's jump into the sacrament of baptism, the second sermon. Uh, so this was written in 1519, um, the second sermon, uh, a treatise on baptism, the holy and blessed sacrament of baptism. Now it's only 20, 20 paragraphs long. It's pretty pretty short. So and it, it focuses on the unmerited grace of Jesus Christ. So just as penance uh, is powerful because it brings our eyes to what Christ has done, baptism is a benefit to us because it brings to us the grace of Christ. So what, when Luther goes through the, the, the sacrament of baptism in 1519 here, and I think this is actually pretty close to his mature view of baptism, uh, it, it's got three parts to it. The first part is the action. The action of actually taking somebody and now he talks about his preferred way, taking them and dumping them underwater. Yeah, let's drown them. Let's put them to death. Let's kill them. And then let's raise them back up. So that's, so that's the action. And that's, that's, you know, of course he says, well, you know, you can just put a little bit of water over their head and that, that does too, because it's not, you don't have to have the whole, and you know, if you think about it, you know, baptism is when you put somebody underwater, it's like burying them. Right. Well, and, this is the imagery from Romans six. As much as you have died with Christ in your baptism, in your baptism you have raised yourself up with Christ in the resurrection of His. And if you have died with Christ, you have risen with Christ. You are drowning the old Adam sinful self, and you're emerging from the waters of baptism a new creation in Christ. So, first two paragraphs: the action, the act of immersing somebody in the water. Um, now, keep in mind as he is talking about immersion, the whole contrast of the Anabaptist movement that required immersion and believer's baptism isn't a part of his conversation in 1519. And if it was, I think he would have changed some of his imagery of immersion simply so that people wouldn't get the idea that immersion was necessary. And that is, we'll be getting into that. uh, The Anabaptists uh, become his opponents. Yeah, yeah. So then the the next part of the, the next nine paragraphs uh, are what the acts uh, signifies. And so he talks about a sign there. And now not a sign as a, a symbol, 
as in it doesn't mean anything, it only points to you as something that really means something. He uses the word sign as ways that we can have the promise of knowing where Jesus is. Okay. Okay, so so this is the, the act of dunking somebody, like we just said a few minutes ago, signifies the death of our sinful self, and then pulling them out of the water signifies the rebirth of the new man or new woman. And then the third part is faith, a simple belief in God's promise that he will work through this activity. And this becomes the final nine paragraphs. And even as Luther writes a small catechism, he'll talk about how is able plain water able to do accomplish such great things. And he says it's not just plain water, it's water combined with God's word uh, that is able to accomplish such great things along with the faith that receives these gifts and promises. So the belief that God is actually killing off the old sinful self and rebirthing, uh, regenerating, recreating. Uh, we're we're going to make some words up here. Um, <laughs> I think rebirthing is a made-up word. But it sort of captures it, right? I mean, that's, that's it, it, it is. It's a rebirth. Yeah, so this idea of faith as a part of the sacraments is in contrast to what is identified in Roman Catholic theology at that time period, ex opera operato, which is Latin, which means of the work of itself. And so the idea would be you could receive the benefit by being present, not having faith, but just being present. So the the, the work of God... Well, and when I read the Catholic Catechism, you know, and and going through all this, they they believe the Catholic today, the modern Catholic Catechism, believes that it removes original sin, mm-hmm. which is another big part of all this. That that and Lutherans would say that it removes the guilt of original sin. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, there's a little bit of a difference there, and and, and what's there becomes happening. a fancy word for that act of concupiscence. Oh my goodness! And we'll look at concupiscence as a word later on, but. Here's the, think about this. You go to the Lord's Supper and you are there in the pew and you watch it all happen. You go through the motion of receiving the body and the blood of Christ. Um, how is it a benefit to you? And ex opera, ex opera operato would essentially say, uh, through the work of doing it itself, it benefited you. And Luther adds really a key component to participating in the sacraments to receive the benefit of the sacraments is faith. The baptism with the water and the word is a valid baptism. It has everything present to be effective. But faith is the means by which we grasp or hold on to the benefit of baptism. Luther writing in the last nine paragraphs about faith is completely upending the system of works in the Catholic Church at that time period. The idea was you do something and whether you'll like it or not, as long as you're doing it, it's going to be a benefit to you. And he says, just doing it isn't what makes it a benefit. It's Christ has done something and now will you have faith that Christ did it? It's it's so you can't even underestimate the influence of these final nine paragraphs in this uh, treatise on baptism and how he attaches faith to it. Now, what's interesting here is that Luther's uh, Luther's writings in these final nine paragraphs were upending Catholic theology of that time, but that wasn't what got everybody riled up. And it's it, what what's amazing to me is it's this third, the third treatise, the third sermon that ends up really getting people very, very upset. And the third sermon is called the Blessed Sacrament of the Holy and True Body of Christ. And it's on, oh, and the Brotherhood. And that that is that is on communion. And it's actually this third 
area. That... Yeah, and the word brotherhood is attached to it because he's contrasting the reality of communion that he is proposing versus the corrupt practices of certain fraternal groups. And that's why the title is this one that's kind of clumsy now. The Blessed Sacrament of the Holy True Body of Christ, comma, and the Brotherhoods. And the Brotherhoods. Because this is, uh, if you're, say, in sixth grade writing a compare and contrast essay, he is comparing what the scriptures say about the sacrament. Oh, I see. I and see, what I the see. Brotherhoods are doing with the sacrament. I that's see. That's where the word Brotherhood. So his... The brotherhoods, the fraternal groups become his foil of like, he's not just creating some straw man argument about who is corrupting the sacrament. He's got this example. So it almost could be versus the brotherhoods. Yes, that would be the um, WWE Smackdown version of it. <laughs> so, so we'll have, the, so for this, for this podcast, we're going to call it the WWE Smackdown version versus the brotherhoods. Yes. So similar to baptism, Luther, uh, discussion of the sacrament breaks it down into three parts. The action, um, what it signifies, and the faith by which we receive this gift. And then there's also the inward... So let's go back through that. That's receiving yes. the, bre the, the bread and the wine. So the action receiving the bread and wine. So 1519, he is encouraging lay people to have uh, the opportunity to receive the wine. This does not happen in Wittenberg until 1522. Now, Karlstadt um, forces it on them in 1522. And even there, Luther says, hold on, let's do this in an evangelical way. But 1519, he's already encouraging uh, that the lay people receive the cup. And we're, we're going to get into that in a few minutes. But the, the but that, that uh, you know, file that one away. This, you know, bread and wine was, was scandalous mm -hmm. in 1519. And that this, this was actually, it's, and it reminds me of when, um, with the indulgences, you have a, you know, Luther, writes in, in September of 1517, he writes this diatribe against scholastic theology, tearing everything apart. Nobody cares. He goes and he does the, in 15, in October, he writes the, the 95 theses against indulgences. Now the rubber is hitting the road. Now he's talking about something concrete. Now everybody gets upset. This is almost the same sort of thing. Once we get into this, now we're talking about changing something concrete and everybody gets upset. So this bringing the wine in and sharing the wine with people all of a sudden gets, gets, uh, well, Duke George gets very, very upset about this, but we'll get, we'll get into that in a few minutes. So the action is receiving the bread and wine. Then he writes about the inward significance. The, uh, what is the, um, signified here? is, well, this might be a, a helpful view of communion. According to Luther, the inward significance of communion is the fellowship with all other Christians through Christ. And so in receiving the body and blood of Christ, we are brought into unity. Uh, St. Paul will write this, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? And is not this cup that we bless a participation in the blood of Christ? And that we who are many are brought one into this meal. So what Luther writes, I'm going to quote Luther here, to receive this sacrament in bread and wine then is nothing else than to receive a sure sign of this fellowship and incorporation with Christ and all the saints. So for Luther, the inward significance in 1519 of the Lord's Supper is unity. There's unity with Christ and there's unity with Christians. Now, unity with Christ is entirely an act of Christ inviting us to be a part of him. He is giving himself to us in the body and blood. He is inviting us to be unified with him. And, and through that, 
through that unity with Christ, we become unified with one another. He equates it to having a document that signifies citizenship in a community where every citizen shares with all others the city's name, honor, freedom, trade, customs, usages, help, support, protection, like, while at the same time, he shares all the dangers of fire and flood, enemies and death, losses, taxes, and the like. There is something, Mike, that uh, as you and I, as we travel around and we say we're from Detroit, that we are sharing in everything that name of Detroit means and uh, in all the dangers and all the joys. Uh, that's, that's, yeah, and it's sort of that same thing that, that, that when, when you have or when, when we have communion, we are part of this community of Christians. And in and, and Lutheran theology, in Lutheran theology, there's the, the idea of the invisible church. And this is where... Unity with all the believers. Uh, Chad Bird uh, is an author down in Texas, also a truck driver. And he wrote an article about the the biggest mega church in Texas. And it was a small country church uh, where it just looks like the generations have moved past this church. But he said, on a Sunday morning when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, they are participating with the angels and the archangels and the whole company of heaven in the delivery of, of that church into union with Christ. And and what makes it a mega church then? Is there with the whole company of heaven? Yeah, it could be, you know, 15 people in that church, but they have all of the, all the, all of the company of heaven there with them. And this is something that has actually been helpful to me in my faith journey to revisit this, to think about this when we have communion at church, you know, that, that, you know, this is, I am now part of the communion of, of saints, you know, mm-hmm. that, that I have joined that. And what is theirs is mine totally. And this unity also means that we, we share in the struggles of one another uh, and what benefits one is great. And what, where there is harm, we share in that suffering as well. Luther finishes up this part of the discussion by saying that communion is a sure sign from God himself, where God says, many kinds of sins are assailing you. Take this sign by which I give you my pledge that this sin is assailing not only you, but also my son, Christ, and all his saints in heaven and earth. Therefore, take heart and be bold. You are not fighting alone. Um, There is uh, a TV show I'm watching right now. And there is, it's a, a Viking style show and there's swords and there's shields and everything like that. And one of the show uh, scenes, they're trying to teach these uh, farmers how to provide a shield wall and then to battle against their enemies, not just as individuals with swords, but as a united army with a shield wall. And then they so- show them in this battle then against the Welsh who don't know how to fight against a shield wall and they just destroy the Welsh. And, um, and the power of a shield wall to protect so that whether you have the strongest soldier or the weakest soldier, together they're all in the shield wall. And, and I had this imagery then in the Lord's Supper, is all my hurts, all my pains, they're brought together and they're brought under the shield wall of God's love that is revealed in the body and blood of Christ. That's what Luther is writing about in the inward significance of this meal is you are brought into unity with Christ. And so what assails you, what hurts you and what harms you, you can trust is carried by him. Now, the third part of the sacrament is a living faith. Uh, We need to believe and take comfort in our communion with Christ and the saints. This word living faith that he does right there is in contrast to the scholastics. So, Mike, I I got some Latin for you, okay? Oh, I'm ready. You're ready? Okay. So, the scholastics talked about the Lord's Supper as a celebration, as an opus operatum, Mm. which translates to a faithless work. 
that whether you have faith or not, as long as you're there, opus operatum, it's going to work. And Luther, on the contrary, contended for the sacrament as an opus operantis, a working faith. What this, I think to me, besides showing that I can read a book that has some Latin in it, is, is saying the Lord's Supper is a benefit to you uh, as you have faith in it. Without faith, um, you're, you're going through a meal as a hypocrite. And the faithful and the unfaithful alike will receive the body and blood of Christ. But to the faithful, it's a gift. And so Luther is encouraging a person to have faith. In the course of these three discussions on the sacraments, well, he ruffled some feathers. Let's close up with what does this all mean uh, for Luther in 1519. Well, let's start with the Catholic Church. Okay, they, they had and they still have seven sacraments. Baptism, confession, confirmation, communion, marriage, ordination, and extreme unction. Which is last rites. But it can a blessing of oils can be done at any time. Okay, okay. Uh, recently, I've heard more reference to it as, you know, not last rites, but as anointing. Okay. Okay. Uh, in 1519, Luther is already saying that he couldn't find any biblical backing for confirmation, marriage, ordination, or last rites. So that only leaves baptism, uh, communion, and confession. Now, he has good things to say about marriage. Um, he writes about ordination and the anointing of oils. Um, even there in his rite of baptism that he writes about, he has oils there. Uh, but they're not sacraments. They're not... Um, actions by which there is an inward signifying and an outward faith by which we receive the blessing of God. You know, in the in the process of doing this podcast or preparing for this podcast, I I was I I'm spending more and more time on the Vatican website. And so I was reading through the Vatican uh they have a webpage there with the the Roman Catholic catechism. And it was interesting to see their definition of a sacrament. And a sacrament is where God, where there are, it's a sacrament is is where God does what we cannot do, and yeah. uh, so, so and and in a way, you know, I'm uh, you know a little tip tip of the hat to the to the Catholics because that I can see marriage, right? We cannot have a good marriage without God's help. We yeah. cannot you know, pre- preach the word ordination without God's help. So that that's it's a complete but. You know, going back yes. to Luther's idea. Well, this is what Luther does. He changes the definition of sacrament, and then he says, see, they don't have seven sacraments. Yeah. And so when I teach uh, world religions, and we talk about the different numbering of sacraments in the different church bodies among Christians, I say, keep in mind the word sacrament is always created in a different way in each denomination. So if the Eastern Orthodox say they have sacraments and the Catholic Church says they have sacraments and Lutherans say they have sacraments and the Presbyterians say they have sacraments, they all are working on a different definition of sacrament. So, of course, they can come up with whatever number they choose. Yeah, and, and, and it's sort of, you know, so it's, I, you know, we work very hard in this podcast to be very fair to the to the Catholics. Uh, we, and so we, since they have a different definition, they, they have, have a different number. They have a different number. Now, Luther's discussion on confession, uh, he totally threw out the idea of doing good works in order to complete your penance. During the 1500s, uh, the Catholic Church only let the priests have wine. That was that was huge. That was huge. That was huge. Um, and in the discussion on communion, Luther advocated that everyone receive uh, both the bread and the wine. And he was concerned that this would make priests seem holier than the common folks. The practice of... Uh, the priests receiving the wine and not the lay people largely came around an act of mistrust. 
Uh, we don't trust the lay people to spill the wine. Oh, okay. okay. Or well, not spill the wine, I mean. So one of the big problems that creates is, of course, like Luther said, there's this distinction now between the, the priest and the laity. And now for Luther, this was a huge problem because John Huss, about a hundred years before, had also advocated for sharing the wine with the laity. And John Huss was burned at the stake as a heretic. Yeah, and, about um, that. <laughs> and and John Huss was in global considered a heretic. So any support, and we're going to talk about that word in global uh, later with uh, XRJ Domine. That's right. All right, so we got Luther uh, being more and more unafraid to attach himself to whatever person may have said something in the past because he's no longer worried about um, attacks against him. You just got to settle on the word of God and preach it. So, so, and like we said in the opening, Luther, you know, he has these attacks. Uh, I think it was Duke George who said, you know, this is all scandal and heresy. Luther says, ah, this is trumpeting of a sterile pig, which probably didn't go over real well with Duke George. So when discussing the sermons Luther gave at the end of 1519, especially the sermon that advocated sharing both the bread and the wine during communion, uh, we have an uproar that's being caused. Now, James Kittleston writes, Luther's comments caused an uproar. Luther now had openly identified himself with the hated Hussites. He was giving his opponents, Eck in particular, good reason to pursue their case against him in Rome. So in the next, next episode... We're going to be covering Rome's response, and that's going to be in the Papal Bull, Exerge Domine. Signing off, thanks to Josh Yeagley and his sound engineering. Thanks to St. Paul Lutheran Church in Hamburg for their, their care and support of each of us. Uh, recognition of some source materials. So we also, as always, we, I referenced uh, Luther, A Guide for, for the Perplexed by David Whitfield. James Kittleson, uh, Luther the Reformer, also Luther's works, volumes 35 and 42. If you would like to contact us, you can do so at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or you can catch us at our website, graceontap-podcast.com. We are also on Facebook uh, with facebook.com slash graceontap.podcast. The Facebook page is a spot where we post every episode as soon as it's live on our website, too. So if you're tired of checking back at the website or looking at your iTunes podcast app to see if the next episode shows up. If you like us on fa- on Facebook, you'll see it show up in your feed. Now, we would appreciate any reviews you could post on iTunes. Uh, that all Those reviews help get the word out. Uh, I think that does it. That does it. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.